This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by the Michael Carlin novel Winning Streak. You can purchase Winning Streak in paperback and ebook formats wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very excited to share with you my interview with Laura Vanderkamp, author of the upcoming novella, Juliet's School of Possibilities on sale March 12th. And I have to say, this conversation and book really hit home for me because I am someone, much like the lead character in her story, I am someone who struggles with the urge to answer every email within minutes of receiving it, as well as choosing to spend my time doing things that take me out of the moment. I'm constantly distracted by uh, people pulling me in different directions. If my phone goes off, I'm completely taken out of the moment because I'm not really that disciplined around not picking it up and looking at it. Uh, but, but a quick story of, of, um, of uh, my background with this. Years ago, I practiced martial arts at a dojo here in Stanford, Connecticut. And it's actually called the dojo. Um, that's the name of the business. Our Shihan, which stands for Master Instructor, for those of you who uh, are not initiated into the world of the martial arts, would really drill into us that while we were in his school, we were expected to be in the moment and at our best. And if you came into his school, bowed and got onto his mat and appeared to be distracted, he would absolutely call you out on it, rightfully so. And this is a really hard thing for us because this was an adult class. Most of us you know, were coming from, coming from the office. Um, and uh, you know, we, we had a lot of office anxiety. You know, it's very hard, as many of you probably know, to actually leave everything at the office, but that's exactly what's expected of us, uh, you know, when we were training at, at the dojo. But, you know, in addition to the office, you know, we, we also, you know, this was a sacrifice for us. It was a sacrifice for our families because before going home, we were choosing to spend an hour, you know, dressing up in glorified bathrobes and beating the crap out of each other. And not, not you know, it's very difficult for, for some people to, to accept, a, you know, you choosing to spend your time doing something like that. Um, and, and as I say these words, uh, I, I, realizing how much I actually do miss, uh, going to karate. Um, but regardless, you know, many of us do struggle with this notion of living in the moment. And, and, you know, of course, even though I know better, you know, I, I, I struggle with it too. Um, but have no fear. This is my message. Have no fear because Laura's book and this conversation will get you on the right path. Um, interesting. I want to point out that, that our chat, my chat with Laura does touch on things that I've spoken about with other authors who have been on this podcast, one of them being Kevin Knight, who was our last guest. 
here on Uncorking a Story. He talked a lot about uh, the insights that he received while running. Uh, he, If you remember, if you listened, he's the, the guy who runs barefoot outside. Uh, but, um, you know, he, he gets a lot of insights while running barefoot. He wrote them down, put them into a wonderful book. Um, and Laura does the same when, when she's feeling stuck. She actually uses running as a strategy um, to, to welcome ideas uh, into her brain. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, another another tie-in here, um, uh, last, uh, last winter or spring, I can't remember at the time. <laughs> it's been so long. Uh, I interviewed uh, a, a, a tremendous author named uh, Aaron Boardman Wathen, who uh, wrote a book called "Why uh, Why Can't I Stick to My Diet?" And um, in the, in the conversation I had with her, you know, we we touched upon this notion of treating yourself like an asset. And you know, I'm a I'm a in addition to being a writer, I'm a small business owner. I have a lot of assets and that, that I treat with care because they help me do my job. Um, you know, my computer, my audio equipment, my video editing equipment, you know, everything is, is kind of um, treated with care. The one thing that isn't always treated with care is me. And, and arguably, I am the biggest asset of my company. So um, all that is to say, uh, just another tie-in here, because Laura talks about, talks about it as well, talks about kind of giving you uh, the space to, um, to let ideas come and, and, and to help, you know, uh, she's got some great strategies for helping you, um, kind of give yourself a little bit more room. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I've gone off course a little bit here. So I'm going to say, since I've done enough talking, uh, without any further commercial interruptions, not that there were any commercial interruptions anyway, um, without any further interruption, here is my fantastic chat with the very wise Laura Vanderkamp. Why don't we just start uh, by just tell me a little bit more about kind of who you are and, and kind of where you're from and kind of what makes you like what what made you an expert in, in time management? Because that's kind of what I take is is one of your areas of expertise anyway. Yeah, well, I'm I live outside uh, Philadelphia with my family. It's my husband and four kids. And yeah, I write books on time management and productivity, which as you imagine, it's probably not something most kids grow up saying they want to do. Uh, the writing books part, perhaps, but uh, time management as a topic uh, certainly came later. Um, I had always wanted to be a writer, though, and I've, I've always liked writing both uh, fiction and nonfiction. I used to write a lot of stories growing up, and uh, I'm, I'm excited that I'm actually getting to write both now um, between the nonfiction books uh, focus more directly on how people spend their time and how we can spend it better. And then this new book, Juliet's School of Possibilities, that's a novella, but devoted to the topic of how we spend our time. Um, you know, as for how I came to this area of expertise, I've, I've probably been interested in, in schedules and productivity for a long time, but it became a little bit more personal for me when I became a parent for the first time just about 12 years ago now. And anyone who's, who's been through that transition, which I understand for, for you was, was a, a pretty uh, intense transition. <laughs> <laughs> what, now, what, what would ever make you say that? <laughs> well, I thought having one baby at once um, <laughs> was, uh, it was something. So I, I assumed that more than one baby at once would uh, magnify that in many aspects. But uh, no, it was, um, 
you know, it, it makes you rethink how you're spending your time and certainly brings a lot of uh, issues of how we spend our time into focus. And a lot of the literature aimed at new parents and how we spend our time is, is pretty negative, um, you know, particularly for women, but I think for men and women both that, you know, you, you're trying to build your career, but if you do so, you're probably neglecting your kids. And if you're somehow building your career and taking care of your kids, you're probably never sleeping and neglecting your spouse and your friends. And, you know, if you're somehow seeing them, like, I don't know, you, you must be living in a disaster of everything else. You know, it's, it's just all this stuff that it's a to, to have, uh, have it all as the, the phrase goes. So, you know, I found this sort of disconcerting, <laughs> all this literature, but I was curious if it was true. So I started looking at people's schedules and talking with a lot of people who were doing a lot professionally and personally. And as I was doing so, came to the rather um, obvious, but at the time, big profound conclusion that, you know, we actually all have the same amount of time. And, and so when you're finding people who are doing amazing things professionally and personally, I, I'm not saying they're not smarter or better looking than the rest of us, but they don't have more time. And so the rest of us could probably learn things from how they're allocating their time. And so I began writing about that topic. When, when did you make writing a career? Um, you know, when, when did that light bulb kind of go off in your head where, where you said, you know, I think I can make a career doing this versus, and I don't know if you worked, you know, in an office or anything like that, but like when, when did that happen for you? When did, when did kind of that, hey, you know what? I'm going to be a writer for a living and I'm going to make my, you know, I'm going to make my living kind of doing this. It's really the only thing I've ever done, um, <laughs> except for like, you know, working at fast food restaurants as a teenager. Um, so I guess that's that's the only other thing I'm I'm capable of doing. Yeah. I I, I began, you know, freelancing in college to make money on the side. I'd write for publications um, and just kept doing it more or less. I, I spent a year after college doing an internship at USA Today, the newspaper, and that was a great experience. I certainly learned a lot from that. And they were they were kind enough to to publish my work while I was there, which was a great entrance into the world of, of you know professional writing because then I could use those those clips to get other gigs and um, landed some stuff from that in terms of ghostwriting books. I had some contracts to do that, which then taught me how to write a book so I could then my own. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I've, I've pretty much always wanted to be a writer. I have my mom recently sent me a couple of, she's cleaning out her house. It's always fun when your parents start cleaning out their house. <laughs> but uh, She's been sending me lots of stuff. Um, but uh, among the things she sent me were, were two books I wrote as a kindergartner. Um, which <laughs> brought back to mind uh, that I had gotten to attend this young writers workshop when I was a, a kindergartner and had presented two books that I had written um, at this conference, which, you know, just strikes me as kind of crazy now, but I guess uh, my parents and teachers were, um, you know, willing to humor me. And so that's what I've just been doing ever since. Well, no, I'm curious. Did you, did you query agents for that work when you were a kinder <laughs> kindergartner? What, what was I, the response? I don't think, I didn't think, I don't think I knew anything about the uh, commercial publication process <laughs> at, at that point. I, my, my sense of publishing is that you get your pages laminated and you staple them, um, which, you know, is, is something you could still do now, I guess, uh, or the equivalent of, of publishing an ebook. It turns out to be quick, pretty quick too. I've done a few of those on my own, just as sort of marketing things. And, you know, you hire a designer, you get a cover, you uh, get, you know, the, the 
stuff formatted and voila, you, you have a book. Yeah, you know, I mean, if I have a big enough binder clip here and a strong enough magnet, I might take my latest manuscript and just put it on my refrigerator to see what see what everybody says. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and you can draw draw a cover for it too if you wanted. I mean, <laughs> I say I'm definitely am. Um, I can tell you that even at that age, my writing was much better than my drawing. So uh, that's uh, good to good to know. I, I'm with you on that. One of one of my daughters, um, she's been able to draw anything she saw uh, since she, she could like hold a crayon. Like very very young, before she could speak, she could draw. She's a beautiful, wonderful artist. I she did not inherit that from me. Like I can't I can't do it for the life of me. I, I can't even draw stick figures. Yeah, I don't know where some of this stuff comes from. Although I would say, I got to say, because this is this is how I view stuff in general. I'm betting that if you devoted enough time to drawing um, and and took it seriously, as, you know, relearning some things, uh, you, you could probably do a decent job. It's, uh, you know, drawing is like writing. You're, you're not going to be probably a, an amazing artist, <laughs> but I'm, I'm betting that you could draw something that reasonably looks like what it was. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about Juliet School because I, uh, I, I did have a chance to read it. And, you know, I know that, um, I know that it's not, perhaps not targeted to a male demographic, but I found myself really empathizing with Riley Jenkins as, as I was reading her story, um, particularly because, I mean, in addition to writing, I also run a small business, a small consulting business, um, ironically enough. And uh, I, I, I'm one of these guys, too, who, who, like Riley, answering emails, like, as quickly as they come in. Um, and, and it has been um, – I've been told by other people that it's not really a good idea to do. And to give you a, a, an example of that, this morning at 4 a.m. I got an email from a prospective client in, uh, in China who wants me to interview um, software decision makers in Fortune 500 companies. Now, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm not doing my best thinking at 4 o'clock in the morning, but I responded anyway. And, and it's, <laughs> but, you know, you know I, just, I, I have that compulsion, which I need to, like, train out of me. But I, I just, in, in reading about Riley, that's one of her, uh, it's really one of her shortcomings, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm curious why you were on your phone at 4 in the morning. I was <laughs> uh, sleep issues or something else going on there, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, generally if you have insomnia, don't pick up your phone. Like it's, it's never gonna, it's never gonna go well. Um, but, uh, no, Riley, Riley has the same compulsion and, uh, she, because she thinks it's one of the ways she can distinguish herself. I mean, she, um, responds quickly to things. She's on top of it is what she said. You know, she's going to solve your problem. She's going to do it for you. You know, she's going to do the best work. She's going to get you stuff you never even you know, thought of, like, it's, she's going to do everything. But of course, the problem is at some point you cannot do everything. Like, even if you never slept, um, you, you couldn't do everything because the demands are, are seemingly infinite. And she's encountering this issue as she moves into management because in the past, she could just do what sort of other people told her to do better than anyone else. But now she has to figure out what's the right thing for her to be doing, what's the right thing for all her teams to be doing. Um, and, it's, the answer is not everything. And the answer is not respond to emails immediately because by doing that, she has no space to come up with the great ideas 
that would lead people to email her in the first place. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so everything is falling apart um, professionally, personally as well. It turns out uh, when she's going into this story, uh, feeling like uh, she's got to got to do something because otherwise everything will fall apart. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I, I definitely suffer from that. But also, like if you if you've ever had a boss that is constantly on email and email, and I used to have a boss like this who would email at two o'clock in the morning. And be upset if you didn't respond uh, very quickly at two o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, it's 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 demotivating. It's actually not great leadership either because you're really modeling some really poor behavior, and um, you know it could it could lead to a, a lot of morale issues. And I know that you know Riley's team is is kind of feeling those those issues as well, aren't they? Yeah, it's a, there's some definite morale issues that basically nobody wants to work for her. And that's a problem when you're in leadership, because especially if you are managing high performing people, like they can find someone else to work for very quickly if they wish to. Um, So, you know, she's dealing with that. And uh, I agree that the 2 a.m. problem is is definitely out there, although I'd say there is also an equivalent problem of people thinking that their bosses want them to respond at 2 a.m. without ever having asked that question. And, and because I do a lot of, like, workshops and all this, I have actually seen this dynamic play out. I remember a conversation I was having with a, a group, uh, an office. They were all meeting for the retreat, and I'm in there, and we're, we're doing some stuff together. And, you know, this one woman is, is basically talking about how she, had, you know, it was like her tip and trick that she'd hired a dog walking service, even though she pretty much worked from home 100% of the time, because she was like, well, I, I can't ever get away from, you know, my phone and my desk during the, you know, because we're, we're just such a 24-7 company. And her boss, like, basically looks at her and is like, what? <laughs> She's, you know, they have this conversation, like, the reason I send an email at 11 p.m. is not because I want you to respond at 11 p.m. I'm sending it because that's what works for me. Like, I'm working at night after my kids go to bed, like, getting through the stuff I didn't get through because I was visiting clients during the day. But that doesn't mean I need you to answer then. Like, well, I'm glad we're having this this conversation. (laughs) Maybe people can sleep better. Maybe you can actually take your dog for a walk sometimes. Sounds like there's all kinds of wins coming out of this. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I was digging into her a little bit more, uh, digging into the story a little bit more, I mean, there's, again, I'm just a mountain of empathy, I guess. (laughs) But, you know, the words floundering were used. She's unfocused, distracted. At one point, she's too stressed to sleep, which uh, that, that really struck a chord with me. Because I think, you know, God, if I'm stressed, that means my body is tired, but you're so wound up that you don't let sleep kind of overcome you. And, and where this really hit for me is I, I, I interviewed um, a few months ago uh, a woman who wrote this uh, excellent book um, about, about diet and exercise. And, and her point to me was, um, you know, she said, you know, Mike, you know, you're, you, you are your company's greatest asset because I, you know, I run the company. Uh, you're your company's greatest asset, but you're not treating yourself like you treat assets in your company. And you really need to take a step back and to kind of breathe a little bit more, f- focus on some other priorities, get some outside interest besides work, and um, and really take the time to um, kind of relax and breathe. And um, and I'm feeling that, you know, at, at Juliet's school is – I mean, is Riley learning the same thing? I mean, is that one of the core messages that, that that's coming through for her? It's definitely coming through for her. I mean, she's been this total stress ball leading up to this experience. And um, But the problem is being this, this stress ball, she can't come up with ideas. Like her career depends on her coming up with 
amazing ideas that as a, a consultant, she can then sell to her clients at those various places. And she cannot think of anything. I mean, she just can't, her brain is, is shot. And when, not to give too much of the plot away, but it's possible if, if she does come up with a career saving idea, it comes up in a way when she's finally doing something that she hasn't done in ages, when yeah. she's put herself in a situation where she's apart from the constant inputs, when she's actually relaxed. Um, and, and so this is, a, you know, just it, it's crazy for her to do. Like she's like, well, I can't. I'm so busy. I can't take time away to do it. But when she does that's when everything changes. Yeah, and I certainly won't give the plot point away, but but to me it reminds me of a little bit of writer's block um, as a, just kind of putting my writer hat on for a second. Um, I, I do, I never really experienced it. You know, I've been writing books now for about six years, and I never really experienced writer's block until the past year. And I find myself, like, ideas are not coming um, or if they are coming, they're not ideas I'm very passionate about, so I, I don't really feel into writing, or I'm not really motivate, motivated to actually carve out the time and, and do that until I take a step back, and I, or I go for a run, or kind of I do something where I'm not thinking and putting that pressure on myself, and then all of a sudden a plot point will come, or a storyline will come, or a character, you know, something about a character will kind of inspire me, and then I'll kind of go back and and do it. But I guess where I'm going with it is you kind of need to give yourself that time to breathe in order to let those ideas kind of um, germinate. Is that, is germinate the right word? <laughs> I, I don't sure. know. Sure. Ger germinate is a great idea. And it's the same thing. I mean, because where does a seed germinate in the dark soil, like in the winter? <laughs> not really, but you know what I mean? It's, it's not where it's obvious you know, out on the surface. It's, it's something that's happening under the ground. If I'm stuck on something, I will stop what I'm doing, go put my running clothes on, go run, you know, a couple miles around the neighborhood. And inevitably I come up with something. Um, it, it, there's just something about pounding around. Like I don't listen to music while I run. So it's just my brain is doing whatever it needs to do. Um, and, and I come back with much better ideas. Indeed, uh, many of the, the plot points of Juliet's School of Possibilities kind of came to me while I was running around my neighborhood. You know, I think um, one of the things I think about just to, to, to talk in general, um, you know, we, we live in this always on world, right? And, and, and we know that Riley's got an issue with responding to emails so quickly. I've admitted the same. But I think a lot of it, like I, I think about like my, my father and mother's generation, like they didn't have these always on devices you know they, like if when when my parents if they came home from work they were home from work they they couldn't you know log into their email you know because they didn't have it you know people weren't bugging them at four o'clock in the morning um and so i'm just curious about your take on this like this always on um there's always on culture that we live in and um you know what are some things that you recommend that people who do suffer from this, because obviously not everybody suffers from this, but, you know, people who do suffer from it and are really afflicted by this always-on, you know, culture that we live in, what, what are some things that they could do about it? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it, it's kind of a fallacy to believe that we are busier than people were before. I think everyone has always believed that they're busier than everyone who came before. I collect old magazines. Um, I've been reading some fortune magazines from the 1950s. And there's an interesting article that was like a, you know, survey of executives about stuff. And a question at the time was like, well, if tax rates were lower, would you work more? And basically everyone answered 
sure, we'd like taxes to be lower, but you know, it's impossible for us to be working more. There is no way we could possibly work more. Um, so, you know, in that sense, like they, they feel the same way people do now. People forget, like, instead of checking your email on the train on the way home, you would have just been still at your office. Right. Like your boss would have kept you there. Um, people have had phones at their homes for a long time. Your boss would call you at home. Um, you know, <laughs> these, these are things that people would take work home um, just because it was like, files they were reviewing, you know, didn't mean that like, if it was, you know, we can review a PDF that somebody emails us and we feel like, Oh, I'm always on doing this. Well, you would have printed it out. Your, your assistant would have printed it out for you. You would have taken it home. You would have spent your weekend reading it then, you know, it's the technology has maybe made it easier, but people still did these things. Um, so, so there's, it's important to remember that. And, and in some ways the technology makes it better. Like now I can read that PDF while I'm, you know, at the playground with my kids. Um, or I don't have to sit in, in an office somewhere to, to do it. Uh, that said, you know, if, if you have a problem ever turning it off, um, I think the first thing to do is, is to challenge yourself to go just a little bit longer. Uh, so, so Riley's problem, of course, she's trying to check everything instantly. So she's co- constantly in her inbox, on her phone, even when people are talking to her. You know, people who by their nature, are much more important than whatever is coming in on her inbox. So if your biggest client is trying to talk with you, you should not also be trying to answer an email from your travel department. Like, this is not, you know, this, this is common sense, but, like, you know, she, she's got a problem. She clearly um, has, a, has a compulsion here. Uh, so, you know, go a little bit longer. Like, put your phone down. I would say that, you know, almost anything could be answered 30 minutes later. And, and you might think that sounds funny, but I've noticed from people's behavior, you look at how many times people pick up their phones, it will be like 20 times an hour. I mean, literally, it will be 20 times an hour. Now, you can't tell me that those 20 checks were all worthwhile. Like, I think if you did two checks an hour, <laughs> you, would, you would achieve the same general level of responsiveness, but have much more open space. Now, if you could get yourself to once an hour, that's, that's really all I think you have to do. I, I, you know, I'm not advocating being a, a monk here, or, you know, complete asceticism like you're, you know, never check email or like once every three days or something ridiculous like that. It is just once an hour, I, I think we can, we can get to, and, and that makes people feel much more calm. Well, you know, you know what I really worry about, to be honest, is, I, I mean, I have three almost 17-year-olds in my house, and they are on their phones um, – 24-7. I mean, you can't go out to a meal with a teenager and not have them snap a selfie, put it on Snapchat, you know, take a picture of whatever it is they're eating, seeing how many likes they're getting at any given time. And my, my fear is that that kind of social media, you know, compulsion is going to translate in, into the workforce. Um, you know, once they're out and, and you know, they're, they're working for other people or having people work for them. You know, I, I, I think about that generation and kind of what harm their behavior now, just in a social media context, might lead into when they are, you know, when they are when they're in the workforce. Yeah, it could. I mean, I, I would say, on the other hand, that, you know, there's a lot of cool things about you know, young people too. I think they're completely busting this idea that work must be done in an office between nine and five. And it's, it's really fun to see them take over an office and, uh, you know, suddenly people get flexible time, you know, suddenly people can work from home because it's just, you know, the, the starting bid as opposed to some perk you get after, you know, 10 years of diligent labor. 
so, so I think that's so. There's also, you know, yes, there's some downsides to kids being in constant electronic communication. There's also some upsides too. Um, you know, a lot fewer teenagers are um, getting arrested. There's a lot fewer teenagers driving drunk. There's a lot fewer teenagers um, getting pregnant and all these things that happen when you are physically interacting with other teenagers as opposed to interacting with them via electronics. So, um, you know, just to, just to put a little bit of spin on it there. But I, I think that said, we can, we can try to model good behavior for our, our teenagers. Um, you know, in my house, I've certainly made sure I'm always, I put my phone somewhere else when I sit down at the table um, and, and said, you know, to my 11 year old, who's the only one with a phone, but, you know, we put it somewhere else. Like we're, we're, when we're at the table, it's not there. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that he wouldn't be on it the rest of the time, but at least that amount of time is there. Or, you know, if I'm driving him somewhere, I'll be like, well, I'm not on my phone because I'm driving. Um, so you're not going to be on your phone either because you need to entertain me while I'm driving you. Uh, you know, just set some sort of guidelines. And, you know, I think as long as kids have other cool things in their lives, like they're in activities, you're, you're making sure they're doing some in-person social events, they're doing their homework. You know, it's okay if they, they have phones outside of that. Well, I'm, I'm actually interested in, in talking about um, the kind of the, the gender aspect of this as well, because I know, I mean, wh- while I'm finding a lot to empathize with with Riley, I know that I'm not the target necessarily for, for this book. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that, you know, it, it just having been in the workforce for 22 or 23 years now, I don't know, I lose, I lose count. But... Um, you know, there, there are, you know, still some significant gender differences between, between men and women and what's expected of them, you know, both at home and, um, and in the workforce. So I'm curious as to, as to your take on that and kind of how, how this book can really help, you know, women, particularly those in, in some senior management positions who might be struggling with, with time management and, and like a work-home um, work balance. Yeah, well, I mean, at first I'd say that I hope men will pick up this book, um, because while the main characters are female, I, I hope that people will find, as, as you, it sounds like you are finding, that you can empathize with the main character, um, whether you're a, a man or a woman, because she really is about anyone who's feeling overwhelmed at work and realizing that the responsibilities in front of you cannot all be accomplished in the time you have. And so you have to think about what is important to you and what is not um, I do think, obviously, there are still some some different expectations uh, for women. Um, I think partly a lot of women grow up with the story surrounding them that work and family are at odds, um, that these two are on opposite sides of the scale. And so when one goes up, the other must go down. Um, that's the whole metaphor of work-life balance, which I, I find very problematic um, because because of that, precisely. Uh, it turns out that work and like interacting with family members are not the only things that anybody does with their time, which is why it is possible. Uh, and you, there's historical evidence to this point. Uh, women actually spend more time interacting with their children now than they did in the 1950s and 60s. And that is true, even though the vast majority of women are working for pay now, um, whereas that was not the case in the 1950s and 60s. So time at work, and time interacting with children both increased uh, since 1950s, 1960s. How is that possible? Well, other things went down, namely things like um, housework, um, probably some adult recreation went down with that too. Uh, so when those things went down, it would allow for more time spent on uh, both those things. But in any case, I, I think, yes, women still have the story that work and family are at odds, um, whereas men 
not so much. I, this may be changing, but a lot of men assume that the way I serve my family is to work. And as part of that, I, I support my family. And, you know, my role is both to bring in money and to spend time with my family. Whereas I think for a lot of women, they worry that bringing in money is somehow, um, you know, taking away from their family. Uh, so in different stories, and that affects a lot of how people plan their lives, plan their time, um, things like that. Yeah, and I'm actually seeing, um, and, and it's anecdotal, but, you know, we were talking before about kind of the younger generations and, and the positive things that they're doing in the workplace. I mean, some of the things, now my last job in an office was years ago, but some of the things I remember seeing was, you know, more dads, more men in the office taking paternity, and even some of them deciding to be stay-at-home dads. Um, so that's something that I see perhaps happening more in the millennial generation than certainly where, where I was in, in the Gen X generation. Yeah, I think, um, you know, younger people don't have as many of the exact same gender assumptions. I mean, certainly you see more people in um, more families sort of split along traditional gender lines than reverse traditional gender lines. But um, for for a number of younger couples, it's a bit more of just a, a straightforward economic choice. I mean, if she makes more than him and they want one parent to stay home, then they would consider the option that he would be the one to stay home. It wouldn't it wouldn't automatically be her. Yeah. So just as we as we wrap up here, um, I'm curious as to, you know, advice from you. Um, you know, we have um, you know, many of us have demanding jobs uh, and many of us have demanding personal lives. So what advice would you give to, to help people like really create more space? Like you, you talk about, you know, Riley needing that space to come up with ideas and and we all we all do. Um, what, what specific advice do you have to help balance that and help people make those choices that are going to give them, um, give them, you know, a little bit more space? Well, I think that the first step for anyone who wants to spend their time better is to figure out where your time is going now. Uh, I always recommend people try tracking their time for a week, um, which, which I know doesn't sound like a tremendous amount of fun, uh, but it's, it's just we want to make sure that we have good data. Like, you know, you're making any sort of business decision. You need to make sure you've got good data. Like, should I open a store here or here? Well, let me get data about what, you know, what, what would be the rational choice. And, and it's the same thing with time. Like, I have tracked my time for quite a while now. Nobody else has to, has to do this for years and years, but like one week is good. But, you know, I saw things like I, I was working fewer hours than I thought I was. And in my mind, I was remembering my longest weeks as typical um, and kind of ignoring the shorter weeks as if they hadn't happened. Um, I was sort of discounting the amount of time I spend in my car. Uh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, I work out of the home office, so I don't have a daily commute. Therefore, I must be in the car just a negligible amount of time. But it's not true. I'm in the car on average more than an hour a day. Um, it's mostly in very short trips. Uh, but that's good to know. Like, I, what am I doing with that time? Is there anything I can do to enjoy that time more? Um, but I should know that it exists if I'm if I'm trying to make good choices with my life. So, I, you know, track your time for you know, ideally a week. See what you like about your life. Um, you know, certainly people who are telling themselves sort of catastrophic stories, like I I never see my family, or you know, I'm so behind at work because I'm not putting in the hours. There are all these different stories. I, I never sleep. Uh, usually your time log will show that you do sleep. I mean, maybe it's not as much as you want, but it's some. 
and we should, you know, be happy about that. And maybe we can scale it up over time or, you know, maybe you see you're spending more time than you want doing something. And then you can ask yourself, well, how could I spend less time on it? But uh, until you know where the data stands now, it's, it's hard to change things um, wisely. All right. And, and, and just uh, again, as a, a question I always like to, to use to, to wrap up is, um, you know, you're, you're a very wise person, Laura. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I'm getting a lot of wisdom just by talking to you. But, you know, what, what, would, um, what would like present day Laura, like if you could go back in time or if you could write a letter to your younger self, um, what would you tell, you know, maybe your teenage self about um, things you've learned and, and things that, you know, that younger Laura should keep in mind as, as she's growing up? Um, well, I think one of the, you know, most heartening things to me would be that it's actually possible to make a good living as a writer, uh, which, you know, it, it was not necessarily something I would have guessed. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty rational person. I was a pretty rational kid. And I, I knew that writing was not particularly an occupation that was known for stability or income. <laughs> That's why they say starving writer. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's always been fine. Um, there are always people looking for written word, or as it turns out more now, um, there's a lot of spoken word in the form of podcasting and audiobooks and, and things like that. And, you know, that ideas you write about can then be shared as speeches as well. And people are willing to, to pay for that. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can turn ideas um, and words into income. And I think I would have been really happy to know that as, as a kid and say, well, that's cool. I don't have to worry about, you know, thinking of something more practical I might be doing or should be doing. Um, I can just go with this. Yeah, very good. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to chat with me. The book is called Juliet's School of Possibilities, and it is on sale uh, March 12th, 2019. Yep, it is. Uh, so please, uh, if your listeners would be willing to check it out, I'd be very appreciative. All right. I'm sure you wouldn't mind a few pre-orders. Pre-orders are always good. Um, and, and if people do manage to listen to this before March 12th and, and want to put in a pre-order, just come to my website, um, and you, you can fill out a form where you'll um, get some nice bonuses, including an ebook that's got a lot of my favorite life hacks in it. So if you're, you're interested in straight-up productivity tips, not sure if a, a fable is your thing, um, you, you can get both this way. Well, there you go. And just uh, why don't you tell us what your website is? It's lauravandercam.com. Um, so just my name. Uh, and, yeah, I, I blog there frequently, too, and we have a great conversation going with commenters. So please come visit me. Very good. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura. I certainly did. <laughs> and if, uh, if her book, Juliet's School of Possibilities, sounds up your alley, or if you know somebody who could benefit from it, visit her website to pre-order it at lauravandercam.com. And if you want to learn more about me and my books, please check out michaelcarlinauthor.com, and that's Carlin with an O and not an I. It usually throws people off a little bit. Uh, but at that website, you can also check out past episodes of Uncorking a Story, as well as, of course, all the, the, uh, the books that I've written. So um, I thank you uh, for doing that. Uh, and last but not least, if you did enjoy this conversation, um, please consider sharing it with a friend. Because, hey, you know, the more the merrier. Uh, so for all the hardworking people here at Uncorking a Story, including Murphy and Riley, who are actually both dogs, 
This is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening, and until next time. (laughs) 